Well, it is, uh, it's a blast to obviously be coming back from vacation, but one of the exciting things is not just celebrating what God's doing in the DeMurray's life and bringing them to be a part of our team here, um, but also one of the most fun things about this week was knowing that I didn't have to write a sermon this week. Um, and I've heard from a lot of you just how God's working in your life through Vintage Grace in your life. And I want to be very, very clear. God gets all the glory for that. Um, Dan won't add to God's glory in the sense that God is completely glorious. None of us as staff guys have the power or the ability to to make God any more famous than he already deserves. But if there's been anything in your life, OST, more joy in Jesus, you've experienced a vintage grace, there is one man, other than God, obviously, that gets all the credit. There's one man that I think deserves some of that credit. Um, And the reason why I say that is there have been moments where you guys say things like, man, Drew, that sermon was great. Now, I have an easy job as a preacher. I tell you what Luke says. It's all I do. Worship, that's hard. That's like art. The text is a little more easy. I just go write the text. But also, I've had a mentor in my life that's really... If you ever hear a good line and it doesn't come from my wife, Jen, right? It's probably come from Todd. Um, and Todd Chapman is the guy, he's a senior pastor at, at a different RCC, Richfield Community Church, which I got to serve at for a long time. So Dan, you and I both came from RCC, uh, just very different RCCs. But Todd Chapman's the lead pastor, and I'll probably get in trouble for making this long of an introduction. Um, but again, I have just been blessed by this man. He has changed my life, and I'm humbled and excited, because uh, in theory, someone just said this morning, why are you here? And I'm like, whoa, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And they're like, you're on vacation. I'm like, yeah, but Todd's here, and I want to be, be get some time with Todd. So Todd Chapman. And come on up, bring the word for us this morning. Would you guys welcome Todd Chapman? You have my question. Thanks, Tony. Just another illustration of Drew complicating my life. Well, you do, you guys do, and I, I, I know you understand, but, but you have a sister church down there in Southern California, Richfield Community Church, that is thrilled with what's, uh, what's going on up here. And to have a, a sister community building more joy-filled communities of faith, convinced there's more joy in Jesus. You're familiar with some of those terms? Uh, really, really excites us uh, down there. So we're thrilled with what's going on up, up here. But, but don't mistake, uh, we miss Drew and Jen. I, I must spend about three days hanging with them. Got to spend uh, yesterday afternoon and evening with them. And, and uh, uh, the, in, the, in the best sense, they have left a hole down there. And uh, uh, the congregation uh, loves them still, and uh, I love them still. But again, what God's doing up here couldn't make us more excited. It was our hope that God would move. uh, uh, uh. Now, uh, Drew gave me a text, and I'm not sure if he picked this one because he remembered. We went through Luke a few years ago down there. And I'm not sure if he picked this one, but but, but this text befuddled me uh, uh, for several weeks. Uh, we're going to look at, at the genealogy of Jesus, and here's what here's what frustrated me. Why does Luke put this at the end of chapter three? Because let's just be real. We all know nobody reads these things. <laughs> We get to a genealogy, Old Testament, Matthew, I don't care where it is, and we just skip through it. So, so I wrestled with, for weeks, literally, why does he put the, because this Luke is a brilliant guy, and, and he's a literary genius, and, and so there's an intent for everything he does. So, so why does he put it where, 
You put it at the beginning like Matthew, if I'm writing, I just make it an addendum with a footnote, knowing nobody's ever going to go look at it. And so what's his point in putting it here? And literarily, he connects it with Jesus' baptism. The text you look at last week, I like the way uh, uh, Drew divided it because it's the way I divide it. John is baptizing people, right? He's going about doing that. And then Luke is a very precise writer. The chronology of events for him is most precise. He goes from baptizing people, John the Baptist, and, and then there's a break before he makes reference to Jesus' baptism. And he interrupts us. And it's, it's a literary device. It's Luke's way of saying, I'm going to shift the focus a little bit. Jesus' baptism is connected with these guys. But but. After he baptized all these folks, he, 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 he says, and then John the Baptist got arrested. And he interrupts the flow, and then he brings it back to Jesus' baptism. And it's that's way of saying, okay, I'm going to shift the focus here a, a little bit from, from John the Baptist and the people he's baptizing to, 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 to Jesus. Now, here's how I figured it out. And you're going to have to stick with me here today, because I'm going to show you how I think I figured out what, what Luke's intent was, uh, is, is, is going back and looking at the 10,000-foot view of the gospel, going back and looking at the, the, the big ideas. But why does he connect these things? I'm wrestling with that. That would be the second question. The book's about certainty in Jesus. I love, I got a keychain from Rick, uh, from Rick, from, what's your name? Drew. I love him. I just don't always remember his name. It's about certainty in Jesus. And, 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 and Luke is convinced of this. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, no matter where we are, if we're a pre-believer or if we've come to faith, here is Luke's un, uh, unbridled contention and conviction. We will be happier if we're even more certain than, than we are. Wherever we're at, increased certainty will, will make us happier. And, and, and so he's starting to talk about who Jesus is, and he gives us this list of witnesses. He starts with Gabriel, who of course comes to Zechariah. Now there are underlying themes, of course, you've been unpacking as you go through Luke, but he goes to Zechariah, and Luke tells us, this is a righteous guy. He and his wife are righteous. He's a priest, now, if there's anybody that's going to be certain about hearing from God, would you guess it would be we clergy? I mean, come on, you can trust us. If there's anybody that gets it, it's we clergy. And so don't miss this, because Luke is trying to say, I'm going to write you a book about certainty. And where is Zechariah when Gabriel shows up? Now, this is a, a picture of the temple, and, and it's not a, a great one, it's, but the best way I can find. Zechariah is right in here. This is the holy place. This is the most holy place. This is the curtain that comes down. But here's what God did in about 1300 BC with Moses. He goes up to the mountain. You guys heard about that story, Ten Commandments. And here's what God says. For about 1300 years, I'm going to manifest my immediate full presence in, in this space for about 1300 years. Now, Jesus is going to come down, and he's going to destroy that. And we're all going to have access to God. But for about 1300 years, this is where God was. Now, he's still omnipresent, but you want the full sense of who God is. So where does God appear to Zechariah through, through, through the angel Gabriel? Where is he? The angel shows up and says, Zechariah, your wife's going to have a baby. Here's this priest, this righteous priest who believes. And what's his response? <laughs> Could I see your credentials? <laughs> see, don't miss this. Here's why Luke writes, wherever we are in our journey, increased certainty is going to improve our life. So he starts with this witness, Zechariah, that we would go, who's going to be certain of this stuff? But Zechariah, he's a priest. He's in the holy 
great place for petty saints. And yet he misses it. Then we go to Mary. And I love Mary because who else should have certainty but the mother of the Christ child? Who else should have the confidence and excitement? And you guys already worked through this narrative, but Gabriel shows up to Mary. Don't be afraid because she's petrified, afraid. How's this going to happen? You know, uh, Gabriel explains some of the mechanics through the Holy Spirit, not through Joseph and all that stuff. And and if you look at the narrative, how Luke kind of records what she says at the very end of it, here's what she says. Okay. If it's got to be me, I'll do it. So don't miss this. The first two witnesses. I want you to be certain. The first two witnesses on one level, they need to grow in their certainty. And that's part of what he does. We go to Elizabeth. You want the hero of the first three chapters? It's Elizabeth. And we don't want to press the gender thing, although there might be lots more application there in terms of women getting it better than men. I'm convinced testosterone does something to the brain that is not good. But you got Elizabeth as the hero, and Mary then goes and spends three months with Elizabeth. Elizabeth responds, How blessed am I? How blessed am I that the mother of the... Messiah would come visit me. How good is that? Now, three months Mary spends there. And so we we have the synopsis by Luke of what happens. What's the very next thing after Elizabeth says, how cool is it? Mary's transformed. And we get the picture, the first picture of what somebody who becomes more certain looks like in, in that little thing called the Magnificat. Oh, God, how good are you to me? And she's transformed when her certainty gets increased through Elizabeth. Then we got the birth of John the Baptist. And, and this, this miraculous child, not virgin birth, comes to, her, comes to be, be born. And then finally, Zechariah, who was prevented from speaking, can speak. And, and then he gives that, 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 that great poem and that great expression declaring the glory of God. Because now he's certain. These two folks that weren't that certain at the beginning. And part of what Luke's saying is we read this thing. I don't care where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't care how much you love Christ. I don't care how much you're certain. If you pay attention, you can get more certain. And it will continue to transform your life. Then we go to the birth of Jesus. We get all these witnesses. The angel who comes to the shepherds and says, you know, good news of great joy. And then there's the angel choir, uh, glory to God in the highest and all, all that stuff. Then we got Simeon and Anna who, who are testifying. There actually were some faithful Jews who were looking for this Messiah and he is here. This Old Testament prophecy is, is, is being fulfilled. You got Jesus saying, hey, I'm at my father's house. You remember his parents forget where he is? And I know you young parents are going, how could any parents forget where their kids are? It happens. Just let me say that. We're not going any further, but it happens to some of the best of parents. But when he says that I'm at my father's house, nobody actually understands what he's doing. I don't believe even Joseph and Mary really understand. But then you got all those around there that are amazed at who he is that testify. Then you got John the Baptist, the great forerunner, the text you dealt with last week. And Luke summarizes his ministry and he's out there baptizing and he's preaching. And people accuse me of sometimes being too sarcastic and too direct. I like to quote John the Baptist. He's out baptizing. People come to him, and they want to be baptized. And what does he call them? 
You brood of vipers. I'm thinking I'm nice by comparison. I have all kinds of biblical justification for name calling. Brood of vipers. And he's trying to warn them, of course, what you looked at last week. Don't think that you're being baptized saved you. Don't think that, that, that being a child of Abraham saves you. And don't you ever, ever, ever think that I'm the Messiah. I got a special role that God gave me. But here's the reality. There's this guy coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's going to baptize you with fire. He's going to change your life. I get a pretty significant role in this. But don't you ever mistake me for Jesus. Then we go to the text for the morning. Jesus' baptism and his genealogy. And I was bewildered as I'm working through this. And it wasn't until I kept going that that, that it was framed for me. Because we're going to end today this introduction of who Jesus is and all the witnesses. And you're going to begin with the text next week that starts into what Jesus does. These first three chapters, who is Jesus, lots of witnesses, and then what does Jesus actually do? And that's what the rest of the book. You guys have gone to the end. You know what happens at the end? There's like a cross. You've heard that story, nails. Then the tomb and all that stuff. So we're building towards that. And, and, and I know you've heard this story. Luke believes you can have more joy if you get even more certain in these events, which are pretty, pretty familiar. So what does Jesus do? You're going to deal with this text next week. He goes out in the wilderness, and, and I think this is huge, 40 days. And he's going to do what no human being has ever done. Contrast this with Adam and Eve. You know, we're giving credit to Elizabeth, but then it was Eve that started the whole sin thing. So let's keep this gender thing fair, right? We're just going to keep it, uh, I'm saying the grape, and oh, they messed up. And, and, and here's Jesus' temptation. He's going to go out there, and he is going to kick Satan's butt for 40 days. Don't miss this. He's like nobody else. And then he's going to launch his ministry. going to go to his home church where people should have recognized him. He's going to preach that I am the guy. And they're going to try and kill him. Another theme. This Jesus that ought to be beloved is going to be rejected by people on one level that ought to know better. So I'm looking at all this and we're ending now the part of who Jesus is. And and it occurred to me here several years ago. Luke's moving through these lists of witnesses and he's building this crescendo. And when he gets to, to the text for today... Who's the witness? God. Zechariah's cool. Mary's cool. The angels are cool. John the Baptist is cool. Now, who's going to testify to Jesus? You need a little more certainty. You're wondering whether he's legit. You wonder whether he's the real deal. You wonder whether this is going to work. Luke is moving through this, and he gets to this place where he says, Nah, let me give you the ultimate testimony. It's going to come from God. And here's the idea, why he links literarily the baptism with the genealogy. We've been building this crescendo. All these themes have been in the narrative. Jesus' virgin birth, all that other stuff. It's all been moving to themes. And I think it's a crescendo that that actually builds to, to where we are today. Don't miss it. Jesus is God Almighty. And Jesus is a real, real human being. Lord, we're going to look at some themes today that are really familiar. We're looking at texts that we've, many of us looked at. Boy, who can count the times? 
We've got lots of stuff going on in our life. Lots of issues. I pray that you would speak to us. I'm a pretty broken and flawed vessel. But I pray you would speak to our minds and hearts. And just empower us to see Jesus a little more clearly than we do right now. That's all we want. It's a simple request. But I pray that even in our time here together, each of our certainty might be bolstered just a bit. So work in our minds and work in our hearts to see this Jesus. There's absolutely nobody like him. We ask this in Jesus' name for our continuing, growing sense of his glory and for our ever-increasing happiness. Amen. So Jesus' incarnation, he is God. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, pretty familiar stuff. Well, we learn from Jesus' baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Zechariah, Mary, Gabriel, the angels, the shepherds, John the Baptist. Now God. If you're wondering, because I'm going to tell you, text like this, I'm 57 years old. I've been walking with Jesus for about 33, 34 years old. And there's sometimes, I'll be sitting around, and I'll still go, God Almighty became a human being. you got to be kidding me. Who believes that stuff? This is absurd. Now I'm 57 years old, and I, those thoughts still go through my head. And I go back, I look at the scripture, which if you've not checked out the credibility of it, is unshakable. Check it out. And God speaks. God. And he, he testifies that it's from God in, in three primary ways. Now, when the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if it was a cloudy day and all of a sudden the clouds parted. I don't know what happened. But here, if you were there and you watch this, you went, oh my. Wow. Now, I know it's cool to see Steph Curry pull up, pull back three from 38 feet and beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, there's almost nothing cooler, is there? <laughs> Actually, there is. And I don't know exactly what happened. But something happened in the sky that people went, oh, oh, oh my. And then, 
in case you don't get it from the heavens parting, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Now, I don't know exactly what it looks like, and all the pictures show a picture of a dove. I go, they're not looking at the text all that accurately. It's in bodily form like a dove. What did it actually look like? What did the Holy Spirit actually look like here? I'm not sure. The people, again, the heavens open, and then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. I think he, he landed on Jesus like a dove. If you can think of a dove flying down and then softly just laying on the ground. The Holy Spirit, after the heavens parted in some sort of bodily form, came down and he, 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 he leapt. That's a word I, I didn't know you could say it like this, but I learned that when I lived in Iowa when we go out hunting and they would say, oh, those ducks let out in my field. I'm like, pardon me? But he sat down on Jesus. And the people went, oh my Oh, my. Now, for me, I'm pretty hard-headed. I like to think that would be enough, but I can be calloused and different and not be paying that much attention sometimes to the, to, to the power of God and the way he displays himself. But then there's one more thing, and I assume it was a big, deep, booming voice. There's heaven's part. I don't know what that's like. I'm fascinated. Then the Holy Spirit comes down. I'm going, oh my. And then there's a voice that comes from nowhere. Because God's saying, this world is hard. You're going to have lots of doubts. You're going to have lots of uncertainty. Even when you're 57 years old, you may from time to time still question this. Go back and check the facts. This Jesus, he's got God's endorsement. And this Jesus is God. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, you are the preexistent, eternal God. Those of you who are listening out there, those that were there, I want you to have a certainty. John the Baptist just told you he's coming. Now I'm telling you, he is here. Now, this is a theology. You know, we live in this increasingly relativistic world, and I feel like I can fairly say that because I'm old and I've seen this increasing relativism. And the idea out there is you can believe whatever you want nowadays. But there are folks that will refer to Jesus Christ and yet deny this doctrine. Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witness. It's a big deal to get this wrong. It's a really big deal. It's part of the reason that Luke has been unfolding this in the themes and the narrative and now he gets to this crescendo to this high point and he goes, do not miss this. This guy is God, has always been God, and will always be God. And the reason, of course, theologically is that if we're going to have a sacrifice, some of you have read to the end of Luke, he goes across, he dies, all that stuff. He's got to be God to pay for our sins. I got a, a golden retriever at home and a Springer Spaniel. I could sacrifice them for you. I just want you to understand, it wouldn't do any good. I could die for you. You're sinners. I could die for you. 
Drew and Jen can testify to my life. There's a little problem with sin and all that other stuff that would prevent me. See, theologically, this is absolutely essential for this guy to go to the cross where he's building to be God because there is this eternal consequence for sin that a human being, a dog, just can't pay. Just can't. It does not work. Once in a while, I deal with folks, even folks from my church family, who will suggest, I love Christ, I treasure him, but you can get to heaven without believing Jesus. I just cringe when I hear that. God loves us, but if there had been another way, don't you think God the Father would have figured it out? That whole omniscient thing gives you a real advantage in solving problems. But he's had to be God in order that our sins could actually get taken care of. Then is genealogy. This is the part we skip over. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. And a lot of the translations will have a division here if you're reading it from the, the written text. I hate that. I think literally he is connecting this very tightly with verse 23. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, which he's gonna launch into next week, was about 30 years of age. But before I go into that, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, he wasn't the biological son, of course, but he was the legal son. Everything meant everything. The legal son of Joseph. The son of Heli, the son of, uh, of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. Now, if I weren't preaching, I'm just telling you, you know how many times I preached this sermon? We'll work through this text this week. How many times do you think I read this? I just skip over it, but today we're going to go through it. The son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simine, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kazem, the son of uh, Alamadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of uh, Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of uh, Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah. A couple of these were popular family names. Some of you do that? the son of uh, Eliakim, the son of uh, Malia, the son of Mena, the son of, uh, of uh, Matthias. Uh, Somebody else say that one. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Paris, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahar, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Now, Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down to Jesus. Luke turns it around and starts with Jesus and works his back, way back, not only to Abraham, back to Adam. God testifies. This Jesus guy is my son. He is God. This is essential theology. If you hope to be saved through this guy, you need to get this. He is God. 
And also, he is a human being. It's about five years ago. My youngest daughter is now 18. She's a senior in high school, and it was after church one Sunday morning. We're sitting around the table having lunch, and, and she asked me, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? And being a proper grammarian, I said, yes, you may, without correcting her beyond that, because I wanted to be gentle. Uh, anybody get that? Did we get some English folks here? No, no, for, just skip that. Go, hey, oh, we got two people that understood what I just said. But if you get it, that was funny. The rest of you miss this, and in and, and so I've learned, I got four kids. I've learned with my kids. When they ask, if they can ask a question, I'm like, oh, now, what's coming next? Because ordinarily they just ask. But when they preface it with, may I ask, I go. So I'm thinking there's some big question. You know, can I smoke pot? I don't know what's coming next. And she goes, I got a question for you. I go, what is it? And she goes, did Jesus fart? <laughs> May I ask why you asked? Now, I thought about making that the sermon title for today. Uh, and, and, and again, may I ask why you ask? And we said, well, at church this morning, we were wrestling in our Sunday school class with just did Jesus fart? And, and I said, so, so what was the conclusion? And she said about half the kids said no, and about half of us said Yes. Now, some folks can think this is crass, and you may think I'm crass for bringing this up right now. If you do, I apologize. But they're just trying to figure this thing out, this incarnation thing, these kids. I actually love that they're wrestling with this. I'm going to ask you all. You can just nod your heads. No, you cowards. I'm going to have you raise your hand. How many of you think Jesus farted? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. But we like to live in this world. We like to live in this world. Oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I don't think Jesus farted. He was in every way like you and me. Except one. He didn't sin. But everything else. Everything else. Now in this list again. Jesus is the promised Messiah because there's three names, particularly David. Hundreds of years, prophets prophesied that this guy is going to come from David and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. When Moses got those Ten Commandments, the priests were to be from Levi. Now the prophets said, the great high priest, these high priests, they're all going to be from Levi, but the great high priest, the tribe priest that's going to trump them all, he ain't coming from Levi, he's coming from Judah. Huge, huge ideas listed in this genealogy. And Abraham, the father, everybody's going to be blessed from him. This guy's going to come from Abraham. And the reason is, he's God. To pay for our sins, he had to be God. But to die in our place, he had to be one of us. And the big difference is, through his 33 years of life again, he never sinned. He lived the righteous life that was actually demanded by the law. And so he could go to the cross in our place. Here's the way the author of Hebrews puts it, because he puts it most explicitly, and this is Luke's point. Therefore, since the children, that'd be us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had. He had to be divine to have the power to pay for it. And he had to be human to actually die in our place. It's the only way the salvation thing works. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to take on himself the righteous anger of God rather than us getting it. For the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the big idea on one level is pretty obvious. Jesus is God who left the glory of heaven, who came to earth, born a human baby, in order to become the one and only possible acceptable sacrifice for our sin. And here's the hope Luke has when we read his gospel and when we see this. Our minds and our hearts go, oh my, oh my, this is awesome. I'm going to talk to just a second to those of us that were raised growing up in the church. I think some of us are so familiar with this idea that the awe that God intends we experience, sometimes we miss. Hey, he's gone and he's man. Huh, what's the big deal? I'm reminded when I hang with my yet-to-believe friends and we finally get to the place in discussion where we get to talk about who Jesus is and you start describing this for somebody. He is almighty God who became a baby. You believe that, Todd? Todd, I've considered you a fairly reasonable guy in most issues of life. You're telling me the invisible God who created all that is was born a baby. Yep. I'm telling you that when Mary was nursing Jesus at her breast, he was simultaneously holding the whole cosmos together. Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph taught this guy to, to, to walk and to talk. They taught the creator of the universe how to walk. I'd like to say that is awesome, but that world is so overused, awesome in our culture. I've been watching The Bachelor, and only because my wife and I'm a good husband, I want to sit there. Only because of that. That's the only reason. But this candidate this year, Ben, the guy says awesome seven times in every episode. Awesome no longer means awesome. I just think it, hey, that's cool, that's nice. Awesome, no, this is awesome. Particularly for those of us who raised in the church, I'm afraid sometimes we haven't really thought through the absolute majesty of who Jesus just is. Leave short of what he's going to end up doing. Just who he is. Now, how does this work that he is completely God? Because I'm going to tell you, heresies are the result of people trying to solve the inevitable tensions. I love that value. You guys embrace inevitable tensions around here? I love that. Because I'm going to tell you, people go, well, he's 50% God and 50% man. No! Well, his divine nature kind of just consumed his human nature. No! Completely God and completely man. And yet he is one indivisible person. Now, how does that work? I don't know, but I think it's awesome. 
If we see that Jesus for who he is, we pursue him. Not because we feel like we're supposed to, not because it's on our accountability list, because we sit here and go, he's like, God, become a human being. Man, I gotta figure out more about this guy. And we live in a world where God has been so generous to us, to all the stuff we can enjoy. And he wants us to enjoy this. Last night we drove by the, uh, the uh, Folsom Dam. You guys, the water you're putting out in the ocean, I'm just going to say, why don't you send it to us in South California? We could use this. But coming out of a drought, I'm watching this water just flow over there. And I'm going, this is cool. We got Steph Curry. I mean, we've, we've got TV shows that you can watch one after the other on Netflix. How many of you have done this? Tell me there isn't cool stuff to enjoy. And Nordstrom, have you seen the latest styles they have? Man, and oh, I'm not going to spend that much money, but I'm going to get it at the rack, which means I have to go there really often to find the good deals to find it in my size. Trust me, my size is actually a little more available. There are not many guys shopping for it. Anyway, you, you got this. God has given us so many many things to pursue in this world but the best thing is him he's God and he is man learn from him learn from him he gives us the key to life here's the way the world says you're happy and successful I'm going to give you three things power fame and money. That is the world's value system. It has always been the world's value system. That's where the world says joy will be found. Now those values are so strong in the world, sometimes they can infiltrate the church. I don't know if you've ever felt it. I'm sure not at Vintage Grace. But those values can seep in even to the church. Jesus says, just look at the, the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes. No, blessed are actually the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed who are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You got these values of the world. People are going to tell you it's going to bring happiness. And Jesus says, my children don't believe it. Come into relationship with me. And then help other people enjoy me. There's the meaning of life. Whether you do it as a lawyer or a teacher, a mailman, a pastor, a stay-at-home dad, whatever it is. This guy's told us how to find happiness in life. But we're at war with the values of the world. Y'all understand clergy fight just as much, right? You guys do get that. Live like him. The guy showed us what a life of faith actually looks like. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture is Jesus with the woman at the well. Because if we could just learn to be like this, the impotence that is the evangelical church in America, I think could be changed. But he comes to the woman at the well, and, and he doesn't overlook her serial adulterousness. But somehow he confronts that in such a way that she's drawn to him and goes and tells all her friends. I look at evangelicals, we either acquiesce and we're silent when we shouldn't be, or we carry placards and get angry and tick people off. I got a buddy down there in Southern California that gave me this phrase I love, which is just simply stand, but don't push. That's what Jesus did. But he stood. Gay marriage. 44 million roughly babies killed since Roe v. Wade. We can stand in this world with the love of Christ and with the grace, but not push. 
that people might actually see Jesus. I'm convinced we could touch so many more lives. And then just worship him. Worship is a word that has been used exclusively of God. And I think we do that to honor God. Uh, worship is just, what do we find of worth? What do we find of value? I got a simple way for knowing what I worship. It makes me happy. Here's how I know what I value. It makes me happy. That's what worship is. It's just, you know, sometimes I used to worship the Lakers. Not so much anymore. Now I'm a Golden State fan. Hey, it's California. I live in California. It's all good. Worship, it's just the joy in me, however it comes out. Sometimes it's singing. For me, most times it's just this experience in my heart, this joy that just wells up. I just go, he is so cool. Jesus. And I mean this not like Ben on The Bachelor. Is awesome. Lord, thanks for your love. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for giving us Jesus. You love us, love us, love us, love us, love us. Help us to grow in our experience of your love. Help us to see Jesus more clearly each and every day of our life. Help us to enjoy Jesus, his grace, his love. Every day, Father, continue to increase our certainty in Jesus.